There are certain skills, critical skills, that you need, that we all need, not only to get ahead in our lives, but also to ensure a successful path forward for our children and for the survival of our constitutional republic. You're listening to All About Skills, where we discuss the eight critical skills you need to succeed and how CEOs, placement directors, executive recruiters, and career-minded individuals utilize them to propel themselves to a higher level of understanding and achievement. Get ready to learn, master, and excel with your host, Charlie Jett. Hey, thank you, Ann. Welcome to All About Skills. This is a weekly series of programs about the skills that your children and grandchildren will need, skills that you need to get ahead in your own career, and those that we all need to function effectively for our constitutional republic to survive. My name is Charlie Jett, and I'm coming to you directly from our studio high above the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in beautiful downtown Chicago. Now, in the last program, we talked about the communication skill. This time, we're going to cover the production skill. So let's get started. I'd like to start by telling you a little story. There were four high school sophomores sitting around Kathy's kitchen table when they started to brainstorm ideas. The students were the volunteer sophomore team that would be designing the sophomore float for the homecoming parade. Each high school class would be providing a float and the most creative would win the best float prize for the year. Each of the students had several ideas, and when they discussed those ideas, the team decided that they would pick the one that seemed to be the most creative, humorous, and within their ability to build during the next week. One of the students' fathers had agreed to furnish the team with his flatbed truck on which the float would be built. They decided to create a large V for victory, have the large letter in bright orange, one of the school's colors, and the remaining float in the other color, royal blue. They would create the letters of the word victory on the side of the float in white. During the following week, the student team brought together six more classmates, purchased the crepe paper, chicken wire, and the wood necessary to construct the float, and while working for two hours each evening, they completed the float on Thursday night, just in time for the homecoming parade on Friday afternoon. Unfortunately, the senior class won the best float prize, but the sophomore team won second place. Now, this is a very simple example of taking an idea and making it happen. On a very basic level, it is the production skill in action, and it is but one example of how the skill may be practiced early in life. The production skill, as you remember, is often referred to as making it happen. Simply put, It is the ability to convert an idea into reality, to convert a concept or idea into a product. Now, not all projects or implementation of projects or creating a real and useful product are quite so simple. Creating and building a float for the homecoming parade is easy, but designing a strategy and then implementing it to get Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait requires the same skill, but is obviously far more complicated. During my 15 years in the world of executive search, nearly all of the position specifications created specifically for the searches stipulated that candidates should have demonstrated that they have made things happen during their careers. Most searches were conducted as a result of an organization needing leadership in order to change something, 
and candidates who had actually made things happen were in demand. In evaluating such candidates, we had to determine what it is they did, how they did it, and what, what was the result. If they had been successful and could point to specific reasons why they were successful, they were likely to have a chance to meet the client for a detailed interview session. Now one can easily search the internet for the best ways to make things happen and obtain good lists, often similar lists, that when applied seem to work. Based on my own experience and knowledge of what others have recommended, here are nine things one can do to get good at making things happen or to avoid failure. The first one, and a very important one, is have confidence that you can succeed. During my time as a midshipman at the United States Naval Academy, we had a superintendent by the name of Rear Admiral Charles Kirkpatrick. He would give pep talks before the Navy football games. This was the year that Roger Staubach won the Heisman Trophy. And he would always shout at the end of his talk with his fist waving, You can do anything you set your mind to do. There is also a poem called All in the State of Mind that we plebes had to memorize and it was totally consistent with Uncle Charlie's message. The poem, taken from Reef Points, the plea Bible, is as follows. If you think you are beaten, you are. If you think you dare not, you don't. If you would like to win and don't think you can, it's almost a cinch you won't. If you think you will lose, you're lost. For out in the world you'll find success begins with a fellow's will. It's all in the state of mind. Full many a race is lost, ere even a step is run, and many a coward fails, ere even his work has begun. Think big and your deeds will grow. Think small and you'll fall behind. Think that you can and you will. It's all in the state of mind. If you think you're outclassed, you are. You've got to think high to rise. You've got to be sure of yourself before you ever can win a prize. Life's battles don't always go to the stronger or faster man, but sooner or later the man who wins is the fellow he think, who thinks he can. Now that's the first point of have confidence that you can succeed. Number two, write down your idea. Those eureka moments that we have from time to time, either upon awakening in the middle of the night or when gazing at a sunset while sipping a glass of good wine, seems clear and simple at the time, but later, when we all try to recall them, they're gone. Don't let that happen to you. Have a notepad or simply a sheet of paper and a pencil handy so you can jot down a few notes to jog your memory later. In a sense, it's like putting your idea on your hard drive instead of your ran random access memory. You don't have to write down a lot, just enough to capture your idea, to enable you to jog your memory to the idea that was in your mind at the time. I personally use a small notebook, since having scraps of paper lying around often results in their being lost during my periodic trash dumps. With a simple idea jotted down in a notebook, it's easy to simply cross out later or just tear up the page when, in retrospect, it seems like what you had was not a good idea in the first place or it might have been just purely nonsense. The third point is seek help and feedback. I've been always reluctant to seek help and feedback for several reasons which probably aren't very good. First, having grown up on a ranch where independence was paramount, 
and seeking help seemed like a sign of weakness, I did not want to burden my friends or give any indication that I was unable to solve a problem myself. And secondly, I always seemed to be afraid that someone would come along and steal my idea. Unfortunately, I've had the experience of individuals stealing an idea, or more commonly, presenting the idea in their own writings or blogs without giving appropriate credit or attribution. I need to change this attitude and do what others claim to be effective, and that is to share ideas freely. There is, I'm told, far more to gain in benefits from sharing ideas and getting feedback than fearing the risks of theft. Moreover, when something is written and published somewhere, such as on Facebook or even in an email, it is automatically protected by copyright. But even though the risks may be low, remember that while the written word is protected by copyright, ideas are not. Most people, however, are busy with their own lives, they're honest, and even if the temptation to steal an idea is there, the process of stealing it and then doing something with it raises risks for them. And it's probably not, with the exceptions of course, worth the effort. Nevertheless, if you have the next little gem of an idea to create something like Facebook, Twitter, or Amazon, you might at least think about a non-disclosure agreement or some other protection before sharing. Number four, create a work plan to include timetables and deadlines. In any project undertaken to make an idea into reality, there are always major milestones to reach. When you're planning your project, think about what the key milestones will be. And when you make a list of the steps you need to take in order to reach those milestones, you will be able to attach a time deadline which you can use as a target and keep your project on track. In order to enhance the depth of your work plan, when listing the work steps that are necessary to reach a major milestone, Make sure you include what resources you might need during this work step and the individual who will be responsible for its completion. You can take the development of the work plan much further in detail and create a professional Gantt chart or a PERT chart. These work plan techniques enable you to set deadlines, assign resources, and work on tasks that are not related to other work steps and are not dependent upon one another. The major point is to break your project down into specific work steps with major goals and then work toward meeting those goals. Number five, measure how far you have come, not how far you are from the finish. You must make periodic measurements about how you are progressing toward your goal. However, you can choose to do this in one of two ways. The first is to measure how short you are from completion. The second is to measure how far you have come from the beginning. In a sense, this is choosing the glass half full or the glass half empty approach. If you continuously measure how far you are from succeeding, you are communicating a sense of unfulfillment, and this is a negative signal. As an alternative, you can measure how far you have come from the beginning and show your progress. Using this method communicates positive accomplishments. Now either method will work, but the glass half full approach, at least to me, gives more positive feedback and encouragement to continue. You don't receive the message, well, you're still not there, or you still are coming up short, and other such negative messages. The important point is to simply do it. Number six is show enthusiasm for your project. 
Enthusiasm is infectious. Sincere enthusiasm is an important factor in making things happen. Not only do you genuinely have strong feelings about the importance and potential of your idea, you communicate those feelings constantly through your actions and behavior. When you show enthusiasm when you work, you openly do what others may have some reluctance to do, and indirectly may encourage them to step up and tackle the same sorts of problems and tasks for which you have demonstrated success. Genuinely enthusiastic leaders prompt followers to positive action. And when you are engaged in starting something new or addressing problems for which a solution might appear difficult or perhaps impossible on the surface, you increase the chances of success. Number seven is leverage yourself and show leadership. Someone once told me at the United States Naval Academy that leadership is the art of accomplishing things through people. Truly difficult projects and tasks are often accomplished by solo performers, but those who can engage others to capture the enthusiasm and spirit of the work markedly increase their chances of success. Good leaders inspire trust and loyalty among followers and employees. Simply put, when you show good leadership by understanding the motivations of others and encouraging them to succeed, you light the fires of mutual trust, loyalty, and respect that is necessary for them to focus attention on and work toward the same goals as you are seeking. Solo performers may accomplish wonderful things and actually start a business or project on the right track with encouraging and real results at an early stage. But engaging the help of others and motivating them to success multiplies the chances of future success, not only of the immediate needs of the project, but also in the expansion and growth of the business or efforts that are desired on a larger scale when there is just simply too much to do for one person alone. A difficult challenge for the self-performing entrepreneur is to let go and let others step up and perform those tasks or projects which the entrepreneur himself or herself feels more capable in doing. This promotes health and competence of the organization as it grows to meet even greater challenges as well as projects and tasks on a much larger scale. Don't be afraid to fail. It is rare when someone has a great idea and begins to make it happen without encountering difficulties and even early failure. Failure is something that is common, albeit painful, but a great teacher of lessons that harden the spirit of an individual. In 1910, at a speech delivered at the Sorbonne in Paris about citizenship and republic, President Theodore Roosevelt, who himself was someone who had production skills and made things happen beautifully, summed up his philosophy. He said the following, It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who, at the worst, if he fails, 
at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Now number nine and the last one, 90% of a lot, 100% of nothing. A common problem in making things happen when conducting a project occurs when team members report their progress. Some will show a lot of progress, even late in the project, and have 80 to 90% of the work steps done and 100% of nothing. This is a problem. It often occurs when project team members claim that they do not have enough data. In reality, they will never have enough data. One needs to gather as much as one can to perform an effective analysis and to strive to achieve 100% completion of the project element. Now these nine tips are by no means all the elements of good production skills, but they have been useful to me, and according to many similar lists that I've reviewed, they have been useful to others as well. Now I'd like to give you an example of my own personal experience, and this is in nuclear submarine operations. It was the Teddy Roosevelt quote about being in the arena that prompted me to action in a more complex example of the production skill. This was in the super secret world of the nuclear fast attack submarine and my own experience in taking an idea from concept to reality. The intent of this rather lengthy example is to show the various stages of the production process from the idea stage to reality in an environment not conducive to rapid change as well as real career risks one must take when initiating change under watchful eyes. The example involves missions that are similar to what many have enjoyed watching in Tom Clancy's Hunt for Red October. But this was for real. As a graduate of the United States Naval Academy, I entered Admiral Rickover's nuclear navy and after almost two years of training following graduation, I was assigned to the pre-commissioning crew of the USS Ray, designated SSN-653, a nuclear attack submarine under construction in Newport News, Virginia. These submarines are quite unlike the Polaris or Trident missile submarines, whose mission is to hide and be prepared to launch intercontinental ballistic missiles in the event of war. Fast attack submarines have a significantly different mission in that they aggressively seek intelligence as well as serve as hunters and killers of enemy warships of all kinds, surface ships and submarines. During the year-long construction and fitting out period, I managed two engineering divisions and was the electrical and reactor control division officer responsible for the testing and accepting of the electrical and reactor control system for the submarine. Following the commissioning of the boat in early 1967 and after the rigor rigorous sea trials, we embarked on several top secret missions as the first operating 637 class or Sturgeon class submarine. A typical mission involved leaving our home port of Norfolk, Virginia, submerging about 60 miles out at sea, conducting the missions, and then surfacing in the same location approximately 60 to 70 days later. We were completely submerged all the time. One can speculate what we did on those missions. I'm not going to tell you exactly, but one can read stories from several published books, such as The Hunt for Red October, Blind Man's Bluff, Stalking the Red Bear, to get a good idea. The missions were top secret, dangerous, and vital to the national security of the United States. 
It is no secret that the nuclear attack submarine force did a lot of heavy lifting for the Navy during the Cold War, and all of our efforts were focused exclusively on the Soviet Union. You are free to use your imagination. After my tour of duty on the submarine, I was assigned to the Naval Submarine School in Groton, Connecticut, as part of the prospective commanding officer training program. This program consisted of several months of training for naval officers who had been designated as commanding officers of nuclear submarines. My job was to teach submarine tactics and Soviet naval ship recognition. After about two months on the job, it became very clear to me that we were teaching tactics that might have been more appropriate during World War II than at the present. And the other officers, including the commanding officer, had only Polaris submarine experience or old diesel submarine experience. They did not have the fast attack nuclear submarine experience, nor were they aware of the specific kind of missions that these submarines were undertaking. The idea that was brewing in my mind at the time was to take advantage of the resources at the Naval Submarine School and provide training for fast attack submarines that were preparing to deploy on their super secret missions. This just made sense to me. After each mission, detailed patrol reports were written and provided as a resource for briefing the crews of these submarines, but there was no way to actually practice and discuss various tactics that could be used as a matter both of conducting a mission and for the sake of the safety of the ship. It seemed logical and prudent to me that these fast attack submarines should be offered at least a week of pre-deployment training with the latest and most relevant information available. Such missions are highly classified and because of their sensitivity a very special clearance is required to have access to information of that nature. Generally, when one is transferred from a submarine and has the clearance, that clearance is withdrawn after the transfer. I went to the office of the Submarine Force Atlantic on the naval base and confirmed that I still had the clearance. I checked to see at the Naval Submarine School who also had the clearance, and with the exception of the prospective commanding officer instructor, none of the other officers had the required security clearance necessary to discuss such missions. I noted that the commanding officer of the Naval Submarine School, Captain William Yates, a former fast attack commanding officer, also had the clearance. I was the only other officer in the group who had recent and relevant experience in what those sophisticated submarines were doing and the risks and dangers they faced in conducting their missions. I presented this idea to the prospective commanding officer, my boss, who dismissed me out of hand, most likely because he knew little about what I was suggesting, and furthermore, good ideas just don't come from junior officers. That was very disappointing to me, to say the least. But I knew it was a good idea. I knew it would improve the quality of missions. I knew it would enhance safety. I knew that the submarine school had the, both the simulators and the resources to accomplish the training. I knew that it would be much less expensive and better for crew morale for a submarine to be in port for a week rather than waste three weeks of training at sea. I knew that in order to bring the concept to reality, I had to do something. The questions were, what should I do and how should I do it? Moving forward would involve taking substantial risk, but risk is something one needs to take when initiating change within a traditional organization. The risk to me in this situation was that I had to go around my boss to get the idea up the chain of command. At this point in my naval service, 
I had submitted my resignation to leave the service at the end of my commitment at the submarine school. Accordingly, there was no risk to my naval career in the form of any retribution as a result of bypassing the chain of command. So I decided to take the matter directly to the commanding officer of the Naval Submarine School, Captain Yates. On a Sunday morning shortly thereafter, I called Captain Yates at his home in Mystic Seaport and told him that I had a matter to discuss with him personally and that involved a matter involving a special security clearance. Captain Yates suggested that I come to Mystic Seaport and visit with him at home. Early that afternoon, I knocked on his door and he brought me into his living room. He was a very gracious man and made a strong effort to make me feel comfortable. His wife was in the room, however, so I asked him if we could go out in the backyard to discuss the matter. In the backyard, away from any unauthorized ears, I told the captain about my idea, that the Naval Submarine School had the attack center simulators consistent with the Sturgeon class design, and that we could conduct a two-day classroom tactical training program for the officers, followed by a three-day session in the simulators. Since all the officers on a deploying fast attack submarine had the required clearance, we could take the wraps off the tactical program and challenge them with exactly what they would be encountering during their mission. During the same time, we would make the resources of the specialized school at the submarine school available for all the crew. My argument was that it would be the best training they could possibly get before deploying. It would be less costly because the submarine would be tied up in port and not at sea, and the crew would be in port with their families instead of being at sea for two or three weeks. Captain Yates said that he thought the concept was excellent. Then he gave me a challenge when he said, go down to the river, the Thames, it's not pronounced like the river in London, the Thames, it's the Thames, and talk to one of the fast attack submarine commanding officers. If one is willing to give it a try, you can do it and I'll support you. He then told me that our conversation was strictly confidential and that all matters related to this idea I would report directly to him. That was a relief to me because I didn't have to go back and relate my conversation to my boss. There were two fast attack submarines in port and it didn't take much thought about who to visit. Commander Steve White was commanding officer of the USS Pargo, and I had met him during the time I was on the Ray under construction in Newport News. Steve had the reputation of being very, very smart as well as being tough as nails. I knew that if I could get him to do it, and he found it useful, that anyone would find it useful. I also knew that Steve had been the junior officer aboard the USS Nautilus, the first nuclear power submarine, and the commanding officer was, at that time, Eugene Wilkinson, who was the current commanding officer of the submarine force in the Atlantic Fleet. I felt that if Steve thought it was a good idea, then Admiral Wilkinson would know that fact in very short order. So I went down to the Pargo to see him. The appearance of a Sturgeon-class submarine sitting alongside a pier has always impressed me. On the surface, the boat, and they are called boats, is about 90% submerged, and it looked like a high-tech black steel killer with the number 650 painted in white on the sail. After getting permission to come aboard, I went down to see Captain White. Commanding officers of U.S. Navy ships are always referred to as captain aboard ship, even though Steve White was a Navy commander. So I referred to him as Captain White. As always, Steve was friendly, but all business. Bill Yates told me you have a proposal, said Steve. 
I swallowed hard and gave him my pitch about fast attack submarine pre-deployment training as a pilot for the Pargo and the concept for such training in general for all fast attack submarines prepared to deploy on special operations. Steve listened intently, asked a few questions, and then asked bluntly, can you deliver? I told Steve that I'd, if I couldn't deliver or I didn't deliver, he could take my ass. That is a Naval Academy expression, meaning that if someone is going to take your ass as a result of a bet or something like that, you had to bend over while he would whack your rear end as hard as he could with an atlas. While Steve was not a Naval Academy graduate, he was from the University of Southern California, he understood what I meant, smiled, and said, you're on. Let's do it. I was in business. I left the Pargo and went back up to my office at sub-school and called Captain Yates. When I told him about my visit with Steve White, he told me that Steve had already called him enthusiastically. You got a challenge on your hand now, said Captain Yates. I sat down and began the scheduling process. After reserving the attack center simulator for three solid days, securing the classroom, scheduling appropriate mini-schools for the Pargo crew, and trying to avoid my boss, he had apparently heard from Captain Yates that I was going to be doing some special project for him involving specific training for the Pargo. I told him that that was correct and said little else. The Pargo was on a tight schedule, and we had to schedule the training for the following week. We took the wardroom officers and covered traditional tactics in the, at the PCO school, as well as a thorough review of Soviet naval ship recognition. During the afternoon of the last day, I taught them some specialized tactics that had been in use on recent missions. Steve White commented afterwards that it seemed completely in line with what he had experienced. We were then ready for three days in the attack center simulators. During the simulations, we focused on close-in tracking of submerged submarines with minimal information. You might remember Jonesy and the Hunt for Red October. In that movie and in Clancy's book, very little was divulged about current sonar capabilities, and in fact, most of what was shown in the movie was current knowledge during World War II. This was totally appropriate in my view. But what the officers and plotting crew practiced during the simulation was years ahead of what had been known back then. Jonesy would have been impressed. What followed during the next few days was amazing. A meeting was held in Norfolk, Virginia the following Saturday, and after that meeting, Vice Admiral Wilkinson ordered all Atlantic submarines who were to be deployed on fast attack submarine operations to attend this training program. Lieutenant Commander DeMars, Bruce DeMars, was assigned to join me in the SSN pre-deployment training unit. He was my boss, most likely to look over my shoulder at first and then assume training responsibility himself. We were really in business. Apparently, Steve White immediately contacted his old mentor, Admiral Wilkinson, and completely had endorsed the program. Over the course of the next year, we conducted the SSN pre-deployment training for every Atlantic-based submarine that was embarking on special operations. When a fast attack would come back from a mission, we would debrief the commanding officer and watch officers and incorporate what they learned into the attack center simulators and prepare next submarines for operations. We also traveled to Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, and set up the same program for the Pacific-based submarine fleet. Since we were spending so much time in the attack center simulators and polishing the tactics of a submarine in 
tracking other submarines, I had the perfect laboratory to create new plotting techniques and assist in the process. I created what was called, what I named, the geographic plot, later known as the geoplot, to, to enable submarines to track maneuvering submarines passively when conducting close-in surveillance. The primary purpose of this plot was to ser serve as a safety device to enable the commanding officer to avoid collisions, to keep the submarine safe. The secondary purpose of the plot was to enable the commanding officer to obtain a bird's eye view of what the other submarine was doing during a maneuver and thus capture the big picture of what was going on at the time. Now this is an example of success in using the production skill to make something happen in a rather change-resistant organization. In the aftermath, I was not rewarded with stock options or large bonuses, quite the opposite. Yet it's true that I received a rather vanilla-worded commendation from the commander of the submarine force in the Atlantic, but a tight security clamp was put on to what I had created, prohibiting me from saying anything specific about what I had done after I became a civilian. In fact, during the next few years after getting out of the Navy, I rarely said anything about my naval experience other than I had been in the service. I remember sitting in classes at the Harvard Business School listening to others droll on about their experiences prior to coming to the school. I didn't have the luxury of discussing my own experiences or relating what I had done to what was being discussed, so I just kept my silence. The tight security clamps also had an effect on my job interviews. I had to be very careful about what I wrote on a resume and what I said during personal interviews. I remember there were many occasions when the recruiter would ask me about what I did in the Naval Service and all, all I could tell him was I served in the nuclear submarine force and we operated independently. I could never discuss anything we actually did. I wouldn't want to. And when I was occasionally pressed to be specific about what I had done, I would have to bite my lip and decline to answer. When I was pressed again on a couple of occasions, I simply asked the individual why he wanted to know. That sort of response certainly did not help my chances in getting the job with that organization. So what were the lessons I learned about the production skill in this example? There were three. One can take an idea from the concept stage to reality in a change-resistant organization. Second, if one wants to exercise the production skill in such an organization, one must have a significant passion and a willingness to take risks. And third, in such a situation, it is important to obtain an organizational support or buy-in from key individuals. Now, in episode number three next week, we'll talk about the information skill. So in the meantime, give some more thought to these critical skills. Again, they are communications, production, information, analysis, technology, interpersonal, time management, and continuous education. So until the next program, my name is Charlie Jett, and I thank you all for joining me as we continue on our journey that is all about skills. Thank you for listening to this episode of All About Skills. To learn more information about the critical skills, be sure to visit itsallaboutskills.com for access to resources like blogs, field studies, published books, and more about how to learn, how to use, and how to teach this important content. That's exclusively available on itsallaboutskills.com.
We look forward to having you join us on the next episode so we can continue to help you learn, master, and excel by using critical skills right here on All About Skills.